What's your opinion on the death penalty? Is it something you think about? Do you think it works as a deterrent? Is it even an active form of punishment in the state or country that you live in? I'm asking all these questions to you, but also to myself, because even as I work on this episode, I'm not quite sure how I feel. Where I live, in Michigan, we haven't had the death penalty in 60 years. It was constitutionally banned here in 1963. In total, only 13 executions were ever carried out in Michigan's history. And all but six of those happened before Michigan became a territory in 1805. According to the Death Penalty Information Center, one of the more notable cases in Michigan occurred in 1828. The story involved a man named Patrick Fitzpatrick, who was hanged after being found guilty for the rape and murder of an innkeeper's daughter. Unfortunately for Mr. Fitzpatrick, seven years later his former roommate admitted to the murder while on his deathbed. Fitzpatrick was innocent. It should be noted that this execution is not listed among the 13 executions within Michigan Territory. Private James Brown was hanged after accidentally firing his musket within the Fort Mackinac Soldiers Barracks in 1828. At least he claimed it to be an accident. After shooting Corporal Hugh Flynn, Brown went through two trials, one in Mackinac and one in Green Bay, which he traveled to by canoe. He was found guilty in both. On September 24, 1830, Stephen G. Simmons, a 50-year-old tavern keeper, was hanged in Detroit for beating his wife, Lavana Simmons, to death one night while in a drunken rage. Bleachers were built for the large crowd of spectators and a band played before the hanging. Before the handle was pulled, Simmons gave a heartfelt speech, pleading for mercy and swearing off of alcohol. At the end of his speech, he sang a hymn to the crowd of silent onlookers. He'd stirred something in them, and after the hanging occurred, the crowd tore down the gallows. The other four executions, post-1805, were that of Native Americans. Since 1976, there have been a total of 1,567 executions. Of the 27 states that still carry the death penalty, Texas, Oklahoma, Virginia, and Florida make up more than half of those executions. As of this time last year, there were over 2,400 inmates on death row. Over half of those are within the states of California, Florida, and Texas. 1999 was the year with the highest reported executions at 98. That number went down almost annually and was at its lowest in 2021 at only 11. However, 2023 has already seen nine executions. Some of the more notable executions were that of Ted Bundy in 1989, John Wayne Gacy in 1994, Timothy McVeigh in 2001, and Aileen Warnos in 2002. Bundy was executed by electric chair, the other three lethal injection. Across the country, support for the death penalty is dropping, and a high number of botched executions, 7 out of 20 in 2022, didn't help matters. According to the New York Times, there were two cases in Alabama where death chamber staff members were unable to insert the IV before the death warrant expired, another where they had to cut open the man's arm to insert the IV. Similar stories came from Arizona and Texas. As of now, even though most of the world sees us as a death penalty country, 
37 out of 50 states have either abolished the death penalty or have not used it in at least 10 years. According to an article from the UK Independent, lethal injection is by far the most common method, but many pharmaceutical companies refuse to supply the required drugs, which has led to states authorizing deaths that are potentially far less humane. South Carolina requires death row inmates to choose between being put to death by electric chair or firing squad. The electric chair is used in eight states and gas chambers in seven. Delaware, New Hampshire, and Washington still use hanging, and Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Utah opt for death by firing squad. That's a load of information to digest. An argument can be made on both sides as to the morality, cost factors, victims' family wishes, inmates' family wishes, religious views, political views. It's not an easy thing to discuss or debate. But I'm not here to debate with you or preach to you. I'm just here to tell you about the last execution that occurred in the state of Michigan and what led up to it. Episode 56, Michigan's Last Execution. Anthony Chebatoris was born on May 10, 1898, to parents Michael and Victoria. He was born and raised in a predominantly Lithuanian area of the Russian Empire, an area which is located in what is now Poland. His father, Michael, immigrated to the United States in 1900, looking to make enough money to eventually bring his family over. After two years of hard labor, he'd earned enough and in 1902, Victoria boarded a ship with her two sons, Walter and Anthony, and arrived in America. The Chebatoris family settled in Trevescan, Pennsylvania, which at the time was an unincorporated area. Michael worked as a coal miner, and the Chebatoris clan grew after five more siblings were born between 1903 and 1919. William, Charles, Francis, Michael, and Joseph made nine. It should be noted that Anthony's father changed his birth certificate at some point to keep the lad out of World War I. Many of Anthony's documents claim that he was born in 1902 in the United States. By the time the last of the Chebatoris clan was born in 1919, Anthony, who now went by Tony, had attended school up until the 8th grade and been working full-time to help the family make ends meet. Tony moved to Detroit that year, where he found work as a chauffeur. The following year, on March 30, 1920, Tony married 17-year-old Catherine Boyd. At the time, Catherine was pregnant with their daughter Vera. He would never get to know Vera as a child. Shortly after his wedding, Tony Chebatoris was arrested on charges of armed robbery after he held up a Packard plant cashier in Detroit. On July 20th of 1920, he was convicted and was looking at the maximum sentence of 25 years at the Jackson State Prison. In 1926, Tony was paroled after serving only six and a half years, but it wouldn't be long before he was back behind bars. In 1927, Tony was arrested for violating the Dyer Act in Louisville, Kentucky. The Dyer Act, also called the National Motor Vehicle Theft Act, was enacted in 1919 to impede the interstate trafficking of stolen vehicles by organized thieves. Tony found himself re-imprisoned at Jackson State Prison, where he would now be forced to serve his full sentence from the original armed robbery case. 
While in prison, Tony Chebatoris became good friends with another inmate named Jack Gracie. In 1928, the pair were caught while conspiring to escape the prison. Both Chebatoris and Gracie were transferred to Marquette Branch Prison in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. In December of 1935, Tony was released from prison after spending most of the last 15 years behind bars. Old habits die hard, and within a few weeks of moving back to his hometown of Trevescan, Pennsylvania, he was apprehended by police on suspicion of burglary and assault. In 1937, Tony Chebatoris moved back to Detroit, where he found his old friend and fellow ex-convict Jack Gracie. At Gracie's Hamtramck home, the two began hatching plans to rob a bank. At this point, America was in the eighth year of the Great Depression. Times were tough, and bank robberies were a quick way to get heaps of cash. With the rise of bank robberies and the newer, more sophisticated plans, the United States Congress passed the Federal Bank Robbery Act of 1934. It was now a federal crime to rob a federal bank, with even steeper penalties for causing the death of someone during that robbery. Once Tony and Jack came up with their plan, Gracie took a drive up to Midland, Michigan, he wanted to get a look at the Chemical State Savings Bank with his own eyes. After spending some time on reconnaissance, he returned home. The job would be a piece of cake. The men chose the Chemical State Savings Bank based on the fact that they handled the bi-weekly Dow Chemical Corporation payroll. Every other week, $75,000 cash went through those doors, the equivalent of nearly $1.5 million today. The Dow Company was formed in 1897, featuring a diverse product line with agricultural chemicals, elemental chlorine, phenyl, and magnesium metal. During World War I, Dow Chemical delivered many of the materials that were previously imported from Germany. They produced the materials for flares, explosives, medicines, and tear gas. On September 29, 1937, Tony and Jack began the 120-mile drive north to Midland. The pair drove in separate cars from Hamtramck to Karuna, Michigan, where they left one of the cars and rode together for the rest of the trip. Just before noon on the 29th, Chepatoris and Gracie parked their vehicle in front of the bank and entered through the front doors. Gracie was dressed in a hat and overcoat, which he used to hide his sawed-off shotgun. Chepatoris also wore a hat and blue denim jacket. He carried a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver in his hand. Once inside, Jack approached the bank's president, 65-year-old Clarence H. McComer. He was up front at the time, talking to his daughter, Claire, who was an employee there. Jack Gracie barked out orders and shoved the barrel of the sawed-off shotgun into McComer's ribs. Without hesitating, McComer grabbed the gun and a struggle ensued. Tony Chepatoris reacted by shooting McComer. A cashier, 45-year-old Paul Bywater, ran to the aid of his boss. Tony fired off another round, which ripped through Bywater's intestines. The pair quickly realized that their plan was ruined and took off for the front door. Above the mattress store that neighbored the Chemical State Savings Bank sat the office of dentist Frank L. Hardy. Dr. Hardy was born and raised in Midland in 1890. His father worked as a lumberman, and he was the second of three boys. Hardy graduated from the University of Michigan School of Dentistry in 1912 and married his childhood sweetheart shortly after. He'd seen action in World War I and was well-known and respected around town. 
After an attempted bank robbery in 1932 that involved men that would go on to work briefly with Bonnie and Clyde, the Midland County Sheriff deputized numerous local businessmen who ran shops within the business district. The friendly dentist was one of those given the honor. Hardy always kept a loaded rifle in his office, ready if needed. After hearing the gunshots in the neighboring bank, Hardy picked up his rifle, poked a hole in his window screen, and took aim. He watched Tony Chepatoris and Jack Gracie jump into their getaway vehicle and take off down Benson Street. Hardy was an avid hunter with impeccable aim. The dentist fired three shots. The first struck the car's rear fender. The second passed through the door. The third shot blew out the back window and struck Tony in the arm. He was driving at the time, and the shot made him lose control of the automobile, which crashed into a parked car. The collision sent Jack flying out the passenger door. Tony looked everywhere for the source of the gunfire as he helped Jack to his feet. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw 55-year-old Henry Porter standing on the corner. Porter was a truck driver, in a uniform that closely matched that of a police officer. Tony fired on the man, hitting his target. Dr. Hardy watched the men stop an oncoming automobile that was being driven by a woman with an infant. The woman grabbed her child and fled as Tony and Jack jumped in. Hardy fired another round in an effort to hit the gas tank of their new vehicle. The shot spooked the pair, who jumped from the car and ran towards a bridge. As they crossed the Titabawassee River, the duo attempted to hijack a lumber truck. Gracie jumped up onto the truck's running board, but that's as far as he got. Dr. Hardy, who at this point was close to 150 yards away, fired another round. The bullet hit Gracie in the head, killing him instantly. Tony Chebatoris began to run again. This time he headed west along a set of railroad tracks. He attempted to steal one car but couldn't get in. Several townsmen and nearby construction workers forced him out of the second car and held him down until the Midland County Sheriff arrived and placed him under arrest. Since Tony Chebatoris had violated the Federal Bank Robbery Act of 1934, the FBI took over the case. He'd be charged with a federal offense, not state. To make matters worse for Tony, if one of the three victims he shot succumbed to their wounds, he could be facing death. 48-year-old Dr. Frank Hardy gained instant hero status among everyone in town and shortly beyond. Both the city council and the local Army-Navy club awarded him medals. One was for marksmanship and the other a gold medal of honor. The bank's insurance company gave him $400 as a reward. He also received a special citation from FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover. The role of hero was not something the dentist wanted. Killing a man didn't feel good. He was quoted as saying, Don't make a hero out of me in this thing. I like to hunt, and I like to play bridge. Today, I'd say I liked bridge better. As for the three shooting victims, bank president Clarence McComer was lucky suffering nothing more than a flesh wound. The cashier, Paul Bywater, who was shot while helping his boss, was more seriously injured, but would go on to survive his wounds. 55-year-old Henry Porter, the truck driver Chebatoris had mistaken for a police officer, died from his wounds at Mercy Hospital in nearby Bay City on October 11th. As Tony Chebatoris's charges changed from bank robbery and assault to murder, things were about to get interesting. There hadn't been a hanging in Michigan in over 100 years. 
The last was that of Waba Namimi, a Native American hanged in July of 1836. The U.S. District Attorney at the time planned to seek the death penalty. Henry Porter's widow reportedly opposed the idea when she appeared in U.S. District Court on October 19th. Chebatoris pleaded guilty to the initial charges of robbery and assault. During the murder indictment, however, he stood mute. The case was going to trial, and he would be the first person tried for murder under the new federal bank robbery law. The trial opened at the United States District Court in Bay City on Tuesday, October 26, 1937. Judge Arthur J. Tuttle, who would be presiding over the case, requested attorneys Del Thompson and James Brooker to represent Tony Pro Bono. The prosecution began by informing the jury that You have been told that there is no capital punishment in Michigan. You are in federal territory here. The laws of Michigan do not apply. The federal law is that capital punishment may be inflicted. The trial went on for only three days, during which the prosecution called 34 witnesses. The defense called none. On Thursday, October 28th, Chebatoris was found guilty of murder under the Federal Bank Robbery Act, and the jury sentenced him to death. Chebatoris was taken back to his cell in the Saginaw County Jail that evening. Early in the morning on Friday, he produced a rusty razor blade that he'd kept hidden. He attempted suicide, slicing his wrists and throat. Guards were able to get into the cell and disarm Tony before he could do any real harm. He was taken to a nearby hospital and stitched up. A little over a month later, on November 30th, Chebatoris was formally sentenced to death by Judge Tuttle. The date for Tony's execution was set for July 8, 1938. Under the law, he was allowed a certain amount of time to make an appeal. One never came. His attorneys informed him that he didn't have the money and that it would be a waste of time. The state of Michigan was in the midst of a political battle. Two weeks before the execution was scheduled, Michigan's governor at the time, Frank Murphy, asked President Franklin D. Roosevelt to have the location of the execution moved to another state. Murphy was quoted as saying, There hasn't been a hanging in Michigan for 108 years. If this one is carried out in Michigan, it'll be like turning back the clock of civilization. Roosevelt was sympathetic, but felt that his hands were tied, as the law was fairly clear. He handed the matter over to U.S. Attorney General Homer Cummings, who then put it back in Judge Tuttle's court. Tuttle stood firm with the decision of the jurors. While imprisoned at the federal detention farm just outside Milan, Michigan, Tony Chepatoris kept up his attitude and remained hostile towards anyone that came close to him. As an atheist, Tony turned away the prison chaplain the day before the execution, reportedly saying, You can't do anything for me. That evening, he was visited by his former wife, Catherine, and his daughter, Vera. With them was Vera's husband, her baby, and Tony's sister and two brothers. He denied a special last meal, stating that he would just eat what everyone else was eating. Shortly after 5 a.m. on the morning of Friday, July 8, 1938, Chebatoris arrived at the gallows. Escorting him up the 13 steps were two guards and a priest. In total, over 20 people were in attendance. The police commissioner of Detroit, Wayne County Sheriff, the U.S. Marshal, the warden, five deputy marshals, three doctors, and three news reporters were in that group. The man that would be pulling the lever was Phil Hanna a 64-year-old farmer from Illinois who had hung over 70 individuals. Chebatoris smiled at Hannah as he approached. 
Two guards strapped Tony's legs and arms, and at 5.07 a.m., a black hood was placed over his head and the noose was fastened around his neck. A minute later, Hannah gave the order, and the handle was pulled. Thirteen minutes later, Anthony Chevatoris was pronounced dead. Governor Murphy reportedly called it a blot on Michigan's civilized record, and it hasn't happened here in Michigan since. So I now hand the case over to you, the listening jurors. What are your thoughts? Are you on Team Eye for an Eye? Or do you believe he should have been forced to spend the rest of his life in jail? Certainly, we can agree that had his suicide attempt been successful, things would have been much simpler for all the parties involved. Why fight to keep him alive? Maybe because then people wouldn't feel like justice was served. But justice for who? The widow of the man who died didn't want him executed. Do those in favor of executions want their pound of flesh so badly that the only acceptable outcome is death at their own hands? We may never know, and according to statistics, we may not have to think about it too much longer. Next month, there were seven executions scheduled in the United States. One inmate bought himself some more time by being granted a stay of execution. One had his death warrant withdrawn. One has been rescheduled. Another inmate in Ohio had his sentence changed to life in prison. There are three men, however, one in Arizona, one in Florida, and one in Texas, who may see their lives ended via execution within the next 30 days. I'd like to thank Aaron J. Veselinek for his 1998 article on the subject, and the folks at deathpenaltyinfo.org. Thank you to all the patrons who are supporting the show on Patreon. I couldn't do this without you guys. Thank you to Dave, David, Jim, Marie, Laura, Vicky, and Chris for all being a part of the team. If you'd like to become a patron of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash curator135. There are three tiers of support, or you can name your own donation. Please like, follow, and subscribe to Curator135 on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And don't forget about all the great merchandise available at the shop. I'll have some new designs coming soon. If you enjoyed this or any of my other podcast episodes, don't forget to leave a five-star review. As always, thank you for listening. And remember, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.